It is estimated that 460,000 children per year go missing in the United States, and that one out of every 10,000 of those children is murdered, which is roughly 46 children a year. Now that sounds like a pretty safe statistic when we are only speaking in numbers, but those 46 children also probably aren't yours. Still, there are 73 million children in the United States. 46 out of 73 million is a fraction of a percent. So yours is probably safe. There were, however, nearly 700,000 reported incidences of child sexual abuse in the United States in 2021, which is actually a significant decrease from years past. But, 80% of actual incidences of child sexual abuse go unreported, which means the real number is more like 3.5 million incidences. That feels a lot less safe. Sentencing for the sexual abuse of minors ranges in severity. In New Jersey, aggravated sexual assault, which includes the penetration of an individual under the age of 13, carries a 10 to 20 year sentence and a $200,000 fine, while fourth degree criminal sexual contact, which includes groping and molestation, carries merely the possibility of an 18 month prison sentence and a fine of up to $10,000. Neither are life sentences, though, so it stands to reason that these offenders will eventually walk free. Maybe they'll choose to live deep within a cave on the top of a mountain. Or maybe they'll choose the house up for rent on your quiet and well-manicured street. The street you carefully chose for its lack of traffic and flowering trees. The street where five families with small children live and play. The choice is theirs to make. And until horrible events befell Megan Kanka, Jacob Wetterling, and countless other children whose names we'll never know, you would have never known where they were. Lastly, it is estimated that one in four girls and one in nine boys in the United States will fall victim to sexual abuse before they turn 18. If you ever find yourself in a room with more than four little girls or more than nine little boys, do the math. Every law with a name has a person behind it. And this is the story of one of those laws. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we, we would be dead. Those are pretty staggering statistics. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard those before. And they're pretty consistent. Just, yeah. And it it shocks me every time, though. Mm -hmm. The percentage of the, like, one in so many of boys 
mm-hmm. tends to fluctuate. There are some reports that say at present it's like one in 33 boys, but that one in four girls has not changed. Right. Oof. Yeah, it's pretty rough. It is so hard. How do they, how do you think they get the statistic of the, um, like, what was it, 80% goes unreported? Un- unreported. Is I'm that just, sure. like, later I in think life? so. I think it's, like, people that come out with it later in life. Okay. Because it is such a, a underreported crime yeah. for, un- like, innumerable reasons. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, fiends. This week, we are, of course, talking about the terribly tragic murder of Megan Kenka and the subsequent formation of Megan's Law which is, quote, a federal law and informal name for subsequent state laws in the United States requiring law enforcement authorities to make information available to the public regarding registered sex offenders. And we'll repeat that later on. Um, But this is a landmark case. So this is why, one, you can access a website. I know you can in the state of New Jersey. I don't know how it differs state to state, but I think in 47 states, it's exactly the same, wherein you enter your name and your address, and they tell you every sex offender living within a mile radius, a two-mile radius, and a five-mile radius of your home. And they tell you their name, their address, and what they were convicted of. Hmm. So you have lots and lots of information. It also is the reason why if a sex offender moves into your neighborhood, you have to be informed by local law enforcement. So basically, this is a a law of information. And how do you get informed? You know, I don't know. It used to be in the mail. It used to be through like a letter that you would receive through the postal system. But like now that everything is online, I don't know that it isn't. I'm like, I'm not 100% sure. I know that when this was formed, it was by mail. Right. You know, I assume that it still is because that's the only information on every single person in a certain radius that the state government would have. Now... What states is, I mean, is are there actually any states where somebody has to go around and knock on doors? No. Okay. I think that is um, just a SNL fabrication. <laughs> okay. Okay. No, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that like local, um, the, well, the, the chain is that when you are a registered sex offender and you move, it The burden falls on you in some states to tell local authorities that you're here, but you don't have to knock on the door. Okay. You have to report that you've moved. You have to change your address, basically. If you don't change your address, then you will get charged a penalty because you're effectively, like, secretively moving somewhere. So you also have to change it on your driver's license and stuff. You know, like, sometimes that's a pain in the ass. I know Mm -hmm. my—I think my driver's license still says I live in Delhaven. Got to change that. But for me, I'm not going to get arrested for that. I'm not going to get fined. Right. But, um— if you're a registered sex offender, you will. Okay. Yeah, I just always think of Charlie Day and I think horrible bosses. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's that SNL sketch with Will Forte, too, where he's, like, trick-or-treating. Oh, but he's like, yeah, right. I just had to come and tell you that I'm a registered sex offender. Oh, right. <laughs> that's right. Well, I think Charlie's was he just peed on a playground and got caught. And that's so. a, that is a thing that happens. Yeah, at 100%. 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, there are people that are registered sex offenders for non-sexual crimes like that. And then there's also the one that I hate. When I moved, I'm not going to use any names or locations, but I remember people being like, oh, a local teacher is a registered sex offender because when he was like first a teacher and he was only like 23 years old, he slept with one of his senior students. Mm. And she was like, 
I don't know if she was 18 yet or she was 17, mm-hmm. but he's like, oh, she came on to him so hard in the locker room. And he like, what was he supposed to do? And, it's, and I was like, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. what? You're all speaking out in favor of a teacher who had sex with his student because he was a younger teacher and she was hot? No, 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 no. That is still justifiably like sexual mm-hmm. assault. Absolutely not. Right. You can't do that. Also, it, he wouldn't be a registered sex offender if she was legally of age. So right. I take that back. She had to have been 17. Right. Ugh. Otherwise, it's just majorly frowned upon and you lose your job. You're not registered for life unless yeah. they're under the age of 18. Get it together. I, I know. I, I just, and I remember hearing that story and I was very young when I heard that story. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, poor guy. And now like older and knowing more in life, I'm like, first of all, who conditioned me to think that way? Right. Well, because it's the idea that that he like didn't have any control over it. And you're she like, was no. just coming on to him so hard and she was so hot and she was so slutty. And what was he going to do? Right. Absolutely not. Right. She was a high school girl. Mm-hmm. He easily could have just walked away, even if she was coming on to him super hard. Right. Anyway. This is neither here nor there, (laughs) but it is arguments that people make about this law. They're always like, it's not fair because that guy Mm -hmm. just was so young and he shouldn't have to report it. Or, you know, things like he exposed himself accidentally by like peeing in a public park, which Mm -hmm. happens so rarely, but does happen. Well, I think what... um, That's why Jeffrey Dahmer was a sex offender. Oh, that's right. Because he pee- peed in public. Right. Little did they know. He also was like jerking a, it in public. A sex offender. He, he really, <laughs> he see, really was. there you go, but he really was. Yes, yeah, so so. I think that's what's hard about, ab- about this specifically because we do make light of it mm-hmm. often. Mm-hmm. I mean, we just did. It's kind of, you know? Yeah. It's a tough one because, you know, people like to use weird little comic loopholes like that to make this seem like a, a crazy thing that people have to do. But in reality, it it, it definitely it definitely is a good precautionary yeah. method. I mean, there's not a lot of ways where we can accurately gauge percentages of children saved because of it. You just can't. You can't be mm-hmm. like, so many children were not raped because of that. Well, there's no way to tell. Right. But, I mean, it is for sure a deterrent for parents. They don't let their kids out alone in these right. neighborhoods any longer. You are more protective or, mm-hmm. you know, keep closer tabs on your kid knowing these things. Right. Anyway, it's it's so strange to remember that this case also happened 11 miles from my parents' house. Oh, right. And I was 13, wow. so it was like in my neighborhood, basically. Wow. Researching the area uh, was not super difficult for me, obviously. <laughs> I bet. But there were a lot of other details in this case that did surprise me. Um, it turns out that I kind of knew the bones of the case, but not the soft tissue. But before we get into all of that, let's take care of a little business, shall we? Mm. Yeah. First, we would like to thank everyone who attended our St. Patty's Day live stream. Thank you, fiends. There were dozens of you. <laughs> there were ones of you. <laughs> there were, thank you for coming. We really enjoy interacting with you guys. Um, and maybe we'll just do more lives periodically just to, like, chat without yeah. a ton of prepared mm. material. Because we do really just like the opportunity to talk. Um, and so maybe a little more casualty would let us do mm. that. And we had a lot of uh, fiends watch it afterwards, too. Oh, yeah? Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. Things are always evolving, but either way, it makes us happy to interact. Um, And I've been told that happiness keeps you young. Oh. And you know how much we love that. Yeah. So much. 
You know what else keeps you young? Mm. A little sprinkling of that magic fairy dust, otherwise known as validation. Ooh, it's a little higher today. Thank you. I was excited. <laughs> and wouldn't you know it, fiends? You can help with that too. Simply head on over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really does make all the difference in the world. I'm truly just dying to get into the you might also like category when someone is having a like true crime binge. That's all we need. Yeah. And if you want even more We Would Be Dead in your life, you can support us over on Patreon, where for just a few dollars a month, you will have access to a ton of extra content, which includes extra mini-sodes, our weekly video after show, Host Mortem, our full catalog of 30-minute horror movies. You'll also get a special gift from us, the opportunity to vote on future episodes, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. And if all of that is a little much for you, you can simply share any of our social media posts to your social media, post about your favorite episodes, let us know when you're listening, tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell that person you see walking their dog, like, every time you're outside. And frankly, it's a little bit awkward because you have to say hi and everything, but, like, neither one of you have anything to talk about. I feel like we've talked about this person. Oh, then I'm running I out of say, people. What's their name? I mean, last week, I think I said Glenn. Who was Glenn last week? Not a dog walking neighbor. No, no. I think this there were was, youths walking oh, around. The it was the one that's dating neighbor Pam. Oh, oh. we have such an extensive universe I of know. people, guys. Sometimes I run out <laughs> of these people. I'm gonna call him Carl. Carl. Yeah. All right. Cool. So <laughs> awkward, Carl. The other, your... the other guy that walks his dog. This one's awkward. Yeah. Oh. The oh. other one is just like, hey, and keeps going. Okay. Has her sunglasses on, means business. This guy's like. How's the weather today? Boy, you sure do are working in that yard, aren't you? And you're like, I don't know, Carl. (laughs) So then your friends and awkward Carl can become fiends and we can all hang out together, which will give you something to talk about. And that's great. Yeah, Carl loves to talk. Loves to chat. Really does. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's all I have for this week. Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? Well, Holly... I do not. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right, then. On with the show. Right now, with the press of just a few keys and several clicks of my mouse, I can tell you that there are zero registered sex offenders living within a five-mile radius of my house. And let me tell you something, that is rare. Because I always look up where I live and I've never gotten zero before. Wow. Yeah. I can also tell you that there are 31 sexual offenders in 28 locations, which means some of them live together, living within a five-mile radius of my old house. Wow. hmm Finally, I can tell you that there are currently 36 sexual offenders living in 32 locations within a five-mile radius of the house where I grew up. And I can tell you all of this because of a little girl who lost her life tragically 11.1 miles from that same house in 1994. And I remember this whole thing like it was yesterday. It was a hot July Saturday, and I had spent the whole afternoon swimming with my friends and riding with my bike from one house to the next. My cheeks were warm and pink from the sunburn, and my hair was crunchy from, you know, hopping from pool to pool. When you're like, yeah. my parents had a pool and then my my one friend that I rode my bike to and another one. So you were like always in chlorine at different places. Mm-hmm. I was sitting at the dinner table in my parents' house and the television was on because we watched TV during dinner in the 90s. 
And it was time for the news. Because remember, I was a kid who watched the news. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We all did have at that point. You I know? guess. Yeah. Like the the evening news. We all probably watched that at the at that point in time. Yeah. There was there wasn't a kid's show on, so the reporters just sounded like adults in a Charlie Brown movie to me at some points. It just wah wah yeah. wah wah wah. And occasionally I'd hear a key phrase. And this time I heard wah 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 Mercer County Park. Oh, that's familiar. And when this phrase came out, my father stopped talking. He walked away from the table and toward the television and kind of shocked because something that's close to your home and like later I would, you know, put together the pieces that it's the murder of a child. That definitely is going to draw your attention. Um, And I had been listening because I was probably having an in-depth conversation with my mother about how long I could hold my breath or the fact that Janine's mom let her use son in. (laughs) But my father's reaction let me know that something was not okay. Did you use sun in? No, I never had to. I wasn't. Oh, you're blonde. Yeah. I wasn't allowed. I wasn't. I didn't get to be an orange head. Did you ever put lemons in your hair? Mm-mm. You I wasn't put, allowed. It's just lemons. I wasn't allowed to do You don't to need do to ask it. about lemons. God, I did. <laughs> <laughs> so my dad looks at the TV in a bit of disbelief and he's like, that's the girl my coworker was looking for last night. And my mother and I looked a little bit confused because now I could hear the reporter was describing the discovery of the body of a seven-year-old girl stuffed in a toy chest in Mercer County Park. And my father said, one of my coworkers knows her dad. She went missing last night and a lot of people went out to look for her. And most people just thought maybe she got hurt or lost, but they just found her dead in Mercer County Park. She was killed and her body was dumped there. It was a conversation for a 13-year-old. It's a great time. Wow. Yeah. So, and I've said before mistakenly that my dad knew Megan's dad. And here's why I thought that. He didn't. We have one degree of separation. My father was friends with Jim Huggins, who was Kristen Huggins's father. On December 17, 1992, Kristen was kidnapped in front of a Trenton area health club where she had been hired to paint a mural. She was taken to a remote location in the Trenton woods, raped, murdered, and buried in a shallow grave by a man named Ambrose Harris, all while his girlfriend, Gloria Dunn, watched. This what? is a, yeah. No, we, this, this is a family my father actually knew. Like, wow. this is his friend's daughter. Um, the Kankas, we have one degree of separation. So, yeah, you can see the cases are a bit similar, and to, like, a child brain, you can confuse the two. So that's why, if I said he had a direct connection, why I may have thought that. Yeah, this case was super famous because after the authorities offered up a reward, his girlfriend came forward and told the police everything that had happened and led them to the body. Oh, my God. Yeah, she was, like, a 22-year-old artist. It was awful. So, anyway, that's the little confusion for me for a minute. It's still horrifying. We still had... A connection to the, not a connection, but like, you know, a degree of separation. Um, but I would never lie and say that I knew a victim's family if I didn't. That is despicable behavior. And I just want to make sure it does not seem as though I am trying to do that. All right, back at it. As a kid who had the news on at the dinner table most nights, I wasn't unfamiliar with the concept of murder or child molestation. I knew they happened. I knew it was the stuff that was kind of Freddy Krueger movie fodder. And Freddy gave me nightmares well into fourth grade. But when I was in my own home, it was always as though I was behind an invisible force field. You know, you always think like, well, this can't happen here. And this short-circuited that whole concept for me. 
scary things happen in other places, but not where we live. I mean, that's what your parents always say to you, right? When you get scared, they're like, oh, nothing ever happens like that around here. Right. I mean, I was aware of Mark Heimbaugh's disappearance, which we've talked about before and we are currently researching. But at that point in time, that happened in a town I visited once a year. It was two hours away and I could safely distance myself from it the other 51 weeks out of the year. This was in a park where I attended birthday parties and Girl Scout events, which still creeps me out because like I've been to this bathroom that is right next to this location. Right. Oh, yeah. And this little girl belonged to a family that we had one degree of separation from. We knew people that were out looking for her. Mm -hmm. It didn't feel real, and yet it was very much real. So what had happened was Megan had been riding her bike through her neighborhood on her way to go see a friend, which is something I did all the time. Yep. My parents didn't escort me to friends' houses. They just let me off on my bike. Check in if you change locations. They would say, be home by 5.30. That was it. That's how it was then. The Kankas were not irresponsible parents. They were the same as my parents and the parents of every single kid I knew, and probably your parents as well. Yeah. But there was more. My father went on to say, oh, and the guy who did it confessed. He lived right across the street. Ugh. Ugh. He lived right across the street? Oh, I hate that. So that also adds up in a child's brain as, wait, that kind of thing? does happen around here. And bad guys live here. They live just 11 miles away, which is a rather enormous revelation to have as an adult, let alone as a child. It was a living nightmare. There were certainly houses that I went by on my near daily solo bike rides where people lived that I didn't know or had never seen. Right. I mean, that's still true of my neighborhood. I don't know who lives in every single house around here. And I would never look at those houses the same way again. I still don't now. No, we always would ride by and be like... Faster, oh, yeah. yeah. They come out to get their mail and you're like... Oh, yeah. yeah. But before we get into the details, I'm going to preface this also by saying that this story traveled as far as it did and made as big of an impact as it did because it was about a nice little white girl with a good family. And all of them are. All of the laws with children's name. Amber Renee Hagerman of the Amber Alert, Morgan Nick, Rachel Runyon, Levi Frady, Miley Gilbert, all who have their own versions of Amber Alert laws named after them in their own home states. Sarah Payne, who gave the UK their version of Megan's Law, which is aptly called Sarah's Law. Jessica Lunsford of Jessica's Law, which is a law that puts higher restrictions on sex offenders. And the list goes on and on, but they're all white. And they certainly aren't the only children that have met a terrible end like this. Children of color, children from marginalized communities, and children existing within the foster care system are far less likely to make the news, to make the community stand up, or to inspire the formation of a law. That is not lost on me. And I'm sure it's not lost on you either. No. But I feel that that's just something that needs to be said because I know that there is this certain, I don't know what to call it, there's this, this certain whitewashing of the true crime community yeah. wherein most of the cases reported are white people. Right. And I just I just want to I just want to put out the awareness of that. Like mm -hmm. I get this. I also am not going to dismiss the importance of Megan's story, the gravity of her loss, and the enormous effect that Megan's law has had on our country as a whole. It isn't a perfect system, as we just discussed, but nothing possibly could be. But it was a huge step forward. So let's get into the nitty-gritty. Hamilton Township, New Jersey, weird for me to even talk about it, since it's like my hometown area. 
is located at the center point between New York City and Philadelphia. So that's where I grew up too, like right in that center point where like New York is an hour away, Philly is like 40 minutes away. Mm -hmm. Um, And it gives like this fun hybrid North Jersey, South Jersey vibe where you have Philly fans and New York fans and a rather confusing and nuanced regional accent, one that I mostly kicked a while ago. Relax. Um, Also, I will argue to the death that Central Jersey exists. And unless you grew up there and can give me proof that it doesn't, your opinion does not count. So take that. Hamilton Township is safe and sleepy for the most part. In 2010, the median median family income was $87,512. Not bad. It houses the gorgeous grounds for sculpture, Veterans Park, Mercer County Park, say in Botanical Gardens. It has a clean and convenient train station. I love Hamilton Train Station. It has a couple movie theaters, a pizza hut, where I used to go when I got my book it gift certificates as oh, a kid. I love that. Mm-hmm. That's where I got my Space Jam basketball. Yes. I had one too. Yes. Not that I basketballed it or anything, oh, but I was like, I have favorite. this. I think about it all the time. <laughs> I'm going to find you one on eBay. Thank you. <laughs> it also had all of like the major convenience shopping type stores. And it was the place where I used to buy my dance shoes. Shout out to Arena Dance and Bodywear, which is still there. Not a sponsor. Not a sponsor, but maybe they could be. You never know. <laughs> The school district has 17 elementary schools. Blew my mind. Why do you have 17? Why do you need them? That's so many. But only three middle schools and three high schools, which proves to me that you only need three, but you have 17. So weird. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's like the schools down here where it's like you go from kindergarten to first and one, and then you go to another one that's like second, third, and fourth, and there's Mm -hmm. a bunch of those like little segmented schools. Mm -hmm. Neighborhoods are tree-lined. People keep their lawns mowed and their kids and dogs on the sidewalk. It's kind of a trip back in time. The history, the American history there goes all the way back to like Revolutionary War events. Um, In other words, it's nice. It's a nice place to live. And it has been a nice place to live for a really long time. It was also ranked in 2010 as the 15th safest city in the United States to live in. Okay. So it's safe. Mm Mm-hmm statistically safe, anyway. So in 1979, Richard and Maureen Kenka bought a lovely little house at 32 Barbara Lee Drive in Hamilton Township. Cute. Isn't that cute? The house was built in 1960, so it's a cute little Leave It to Beaver-style community, and had been formerly owned by a family who moved to New Egypt, which is a town about a half an hour away. So this is a tight-knit community. The people knew the family that moved away. And when the Kankas moved in, they were like a young couple looking to start up a family of their own. It was just a very good fit. They made friends quickly as any like small town would. By 1994, the Kankas had welcomed three children into the world, two girls and a boy. The youngest was seven-year-old Megan. We have no need to talk about their other two children. They are living their lives in relative anonymity and do not need us talking about them. This is the time in a, in a small family that those of us who want one kind of dream of. You have the place where all your kids are still kids, and yet they have that little grain of autonomy that allows you to have a whole entire conversation. They make friends and find interests. And if you're lucky, you live in a place with a village. You know the saying, it takes a village to raise a child. If you have one, you know how true that is. A neighborhood where all the kids play together, running in little age section hordes, is a dream. If they all happen to be at your house for lunch, you give them lunch. If someone falls off their bike and your house is the closest, you put a Band-Aid on their knee. Backyard barbecues spring up out of nowhere. Doors are always open. And everyone knows everything about everyone. Sure, it can be a little gossipy. 
You know how it is. That's, that's the fun. Yeah, that's part of the fun of living in that kind of environment. Secrets are told over clothes lines and next to mailboxes. Yeah. <laughs> or like over the fence in the backyard. Yeah, there's Carl. <laughs> Carl's out there like, well, let me tell you about this one. <laughs> so I just stopped at Barbara Ann's. You'll never guess what she just said. <laughs> but... When you're sick, a pot of soup will show up on your doorstep without asking. And if your kid breaks their leg in the summertime, 15 others will jury rig a box of trash bags and a bunch of inner tubes so that they can still go swimming. Mm -hmm. You always have the uh, parents, like the one kid's parents that are really strict. Oh, yeah. Like a real protective. We talked about this kid. We're like, well, he can't ever go to stuff and he's got to be in at three o'clock. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Oh, that poor, that kid's probably Carl's. Yeah. He's now Carl. Who are we kidding? Carl doesn't have any kids. (laughs) It was Robbie, but now is Robert. (laughs) Oh, no. There's something like that in this story. Oh, no. But that that's just it's what safety feels like. You feel like you have this web of people and you're all kind of looking out for one another. And so you don't have to be hyper vigilant all the time. It's Mm -hmm. the benefit of living in that kind of a place. I know because I lived in it. But just because it feels like you know everyone around you, doesn't mean that you actually do. Community certainly isn't for everyone either. Some people prefer to keep to themselves, and that's fine, but they do become somewhat invisible to the nucleus of the neighborhood. The ones who have chosen to stick together, like you have your neighborhood people and the ones that don't engage, like you don't even really see them. Right. Loners always exist under the radar. Not engaging is an invisibility cloak of sorts. You'd be surprised at what you can get away with when nobody knows your name. For Barbara Lee Drive, the people that lived at number 27 all seemed to fall under that radar. Three men lived there with the house's original elderly owner, Mrs. Cefeli, who was quite often ill and quietly drifting into dementia at this point in time. Oh, So she's, yeah, she's in her early 70s, but she's kind of a non-entity. She, like, is always bed-bound and doesn't always fully know what's going on. Mm. So she isn't even, she doesn't even get mentioned really in this case because again, she didn't know what was going on. The aforementioned men who lived there were Mrs. Cefeli's adult son, Joe, who had grown up in the neighborhood and anyone who knew him back then called him Joey. Mm. And his two friends, Jesse and Brian. Joe had left the neighborhood for a while and in fact, nobody had really seen him since 1978, a year before the Kankas moved in. But he returned in 1987, seemingly to care for his elderly mother, which checks out. Over the years, he took on two roommates, and they seemed to share the household duties and help with bills and take shifts in caring for Mrs. Cefeli, who could not be alone for extended periods of time. It's an odd arrangement, and certainly there were whispers here and there. But this is a time when the most popular show on television featured three men caring for three kids in a big house. So why not? Right? show ever. (laughs) But I'm getting ahead of myself, and this is most definitely your domain, Leslie. So before we get into the day of the crime, why don't you tell us a little bit about 1994? Like, what was it like all the way back then? Mm. The clothing is back in style, which makes me feel incredibly old. (laughs) All right. So um, when we talked about this, I realized that I was also seven in 1994. I don't like that. So (laughs) I just... I decided to just remember what life was like for me in 1994. Oh. 
So again, I was about the same age as Megan. She was about four months older than me. So uh, here's what I remember. I remember playing outside a lot. Being only seven, we still needed to be somewhat supervised, but we could play in the front yard without worry. I could ride my bike on my street without my parents being outside. My mom liked it if there were other kids, but it wasn't necessary. Yeah. Um, I could also just ride my bike down the street to my friend's house, which was I was on one end of the street and they were all the way down at the dead end. And I could just this go there like whenever. The same was, situation. Mm-hmm. They were our best friends. They had a pool down there. We had a pool at our house, but it would we were either at one or the other house. And so your hair was always crunchy. Ends. You're in yep. chlorine at both houses. They had a super, that was uh, Sarah Misavage. She had a super great uh, We've talked house. about her before. Yeah. <laughs> I know. She was my, they were like best friends because her brother was the same age as my brother and she was two years older than me. But so we were all just like best friends. That's the beauty of these neighborhoods. Yeah. Things that we like to play with, we were playing with Connects. So like we kind of got rid of match the Matchbox cars for a little while. Okay. Connects got like really popular for boys. Polly Pockets, American Girl Dolls, Legos, uh, just plain old blocks. Brain Quest. Do you remember Brain oh, Quest? Yeah. Um, and we were collecting Beanie Babies at this time. Oh, it was God. like a year in and I was deep. How are those collections doing, you guys? You rich yet? Doing so well. <laughs> So well. I'm still holding on. They're gonna, make, it's going to come back. Yes, you make $500,000 off that Princess Diana bear yet. Not yet, but I'm still young. <laughs> they are. It's going to come back. People Just are get, getting rid of them now. Like, no, no, You're no. Gonna hold on to yours. You hold on to that. <laughs> we also loved a game of Candyland. Mm-hmm. It was so good. Lion King and the Santa Claus came out that year, so... We were having a great time with movies. Oh, boy. The cast of Home Improvement was nailing it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I forgot to check when Lion King actually was released. It was probably for the it was probably for the summer. Yeah, that's so like a summer blockbuster. So I would say she probably got thing, to watch that. I hope so. I would, yeah. Okay, so riding bikes, rollerblading, and scooters were the only way to get around. By seventh grade, most kids, at least in my school, were all tying their shoes, which allowed for much cooler sneakers. Seventh grade. You better yeah. be tying your shoe before like second, seventh grade. Well, that's what I'm saying. We were all we were at. Oh, least, you say second grade. Oh, hold on. Let me start over. <laughs> By the time you were 12, you, you could well, tie Let me your start shoe. over. <laughs> I was in Bye. seventh grade. I, I think because I meant to write seven years old by seven and it just, yeah. <laughs> by Keep it. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> by second grade, most kids, at least in my school, were all tying their shoes which allowed for much cooler sneakers. My favorites were the ones where the heel lit up. Those oh, were really yeah. popular then. I was too old for those. Yeah, oh, I loved them. I was so excited when my mom got me a pair. Um, and because our feet were growing, it was like by the time the battery ran out, you needed a new pair of shoes anyway. So it was great. Yeah, my kids lasted yeah. pretty much until the end of the life of their shoes. Yeah. Um, I can best describe clothing for a seven-year-old as Nickelodeon colors. I just remember bright, fun colors. My favorite show was The Secret World of Alex Mack oh, on Nickelodeon, I remember that one. Uh, which came out in 1994, and I wanted to dress exactly like her, and I still do. She was very cool. Yeah. Uh, she always had, like, the backwards hat on and, like, the striped oh, yeah. T-shirts and then wrap around. It was very grunge mm-hmm. is what I remember, and it's the exact same thing that we're wearing now. She liked an overall. Like, you love an overall. I love, yeah, I dress just like her. <laughs> now we know where you get it. Yep. Um, I also enjoyed all of her books. They had Alex Mack books. Oh, I never read those. 
I can give them to you. Great. Uh, we know I was obviously obsessed with Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen. What and happened? I would suspect that Megan was too uh, because we all were. I'm sure that she was renting the same sleepover videos she was singing with her brother for sale. Yes. <laughs> Other for sale. Uh, so whatever they were wearing, we were wearing, too. Yeah. Um, at this age, hairstyles were whatever our parents gave us. I definitely wasn't doing my own hair, and we didn't have YouTube to tell us how we could do it better. Uh, my mom gave me a lot of braids or pulled my hair into ponytails and just, like, let my angel whispers fly free. <laughs> angel whispers! Get out. Did your mom have a name for them? No. (laughs) I think they were like angel whispers or sometimes she'd be like angel kisses. I think my mom was like, fix your flyaways. No, my mom loved them. And she would tell me that like, she's going to hate that I'm going to say this because I used to get so mad. I was like, I just want them to go back. Like, why? They're just all over my head. She's just like, at night, they come in and like, just clip around your hair. So you always what? have them. Mad? That's adorable. I don't know. She <laughs> Angel whispers. Oh, man. I knew you'd like that. I love it. So uh, down styles involved blowouts with it curled like completely underneath with like a big round <laughs> old <helmet-y>. brush. Yeah. <laughs> and then half up styles were also popular. We loved scrunchies. Oh boy. Too. I had so many. I had them. Yeah. Um, I had them all on. Do you know those like warped like glass soda bottles that you would yes. fill with sand? Yeah. Like colored sand. I had one of those in my room and it was all I put all my scrunchies on it. Yeah. I have one of those that I made down here. At you that. should put your scrunchies yeah. on it. It's a great place to yeah. hold them. <laughs> So honestly, the fashion hairstyles remind me of the trends right now. But like second graders, like second graders now have YouTube. So they definitely do their makeup and use hair straighteners. Well, they can. They can do their makeup, but they know what a hair straightener is. And they look much more put together because us as parents are like, we don't want the same thing for you that we had to go through. Let me tell you something. (laughs) No, they do not. Because they don't want to do any of that. That's true. Yeah. I guess that's still a little young, right? Oh, yeah, that's very young. My daughter's in fifth grade, and I still have to, like, they don't want to do their hair. None of those kids in her grade do. I still have to, like, a few days a week, I'm like, just let me French braid it, please. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's true. I guess a couple of my friends' kids, they do their hair, but, like, they do it well. And I'm like, oh, I wish that's what my hair looked like. (laughs) That's mom doing their hair. Yeah. No, yeah. That's what I mean, though. Mm -hmm. But they know what a hair straightener is or, like, Sometimes I see the girls' hairs curled with a curling iron. Sometimes I'm like, they need angel whispers. My God, yeah. Anyway, seven years old seems so young, but I remember so much from this time. I remember the grades I got in school, the subjects I had a hard time with, which was spelling and grammar. I know, so surprising. I remember thinking kindergartners and first graders were so much younger than me now. Like being in second grade was when I really started school. Oh, boy. That's also when I learned cursive. So, like, I knew how to write and read everything, which was Mm -hmm. awesome. Um, I also remember this was the year both my grandmothers and my pet hamster died and fully grasping that they were gone forever and dealing with those feelings. So just kind of, like, understanding a little bit more. Yeah. I remember getting myself ready for school in the morning. My mom might need to help me finish off an outfit, but I could wake up, pour myself cereal, make dinosaur egg oatmeal, uh, brush my teeth, and get ready for school. So, like... I felt like an actual person. Yeah. My son is in second grade. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, like I can hold great conversations with Flynn now. He'll tell like you about he has, Pokemon all day long. I know. Um, so all of this is to say that I remember feeling like a full-formed child, no longer a little kid, but just a kid. And being a kid at this age meant some innocence was lost. And I remember understanding what kidnapping was and that I was the target. So I had to be careful, but I was trusting. If my parents were okay with someone, so was I. Though, I do remember my mother explaining to me that only she or dad would pick me up from school and that if anyone, even a family member or friend, said that they were there for me, I'm not to go with them unless she told me herself that it was fine. Oh, my kids have a code word. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. And then um, I think after this case, we had like code words and stuff. But uh, I just remember, I remember knowing about kidnapping because mm-hmm. like, obviously that was still on the news and things like that. But we all watch the news. Yeah. And then in school, they're just like, Yeah, there were anywhere. programs that were yeah. like, stranger danger, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. But I just remember at that age being fully aware of like, oh, I'm the target of this Yeah. Act. Yes. And then after this point, like third grade and on, it was a lot more serious. Ugh. Yeah. So that was what I remember from 1994. So that, a would, kid. that would have been the exact same kind of surroundings for Megan. Mm-hmm. So this brings us to Friday, July 29th, 1994. It is 6.30 in the evening, but at that time of year, 6.30 would have still been pretty sunny and hot. Yeah. Probably a little wiped out from the week, Maureen Kanka decided to lie down and relax a little bit after dinner. Not out of the ordinary. Friday. Being a typical seven-year-old, though, Megan didn't need any downtime. Kids never do. So she decided to hop on her bike and pedal down the block to visit her friend. Just like you said, down the street to yeah. see her friend. Still bright light out. And Megan was, oh, she was such a cute kid. Really adorable child. She's those round cheeks yeah. and that big smile. Yeah. She might as well have been a magazine ad for popsicles and happiness. Gap kids. Yeah. <laughs> she liked rainbows, milk and cookies, puppies, hopscotch, flowers, and her friends. Oh, I know those are the facts I could gather. So cute. Neighbors referred to her as an angel. They were like, she was such an angel. She was just such a cute, sweet little kid who was never really like, she wasn't like a troublemaker, never an unkind word out of her mouth. Every day she would also, oh, this story makes me so sad. Um, That summer, every day she would ask her postal worker if he was bringing her a letter from a friend of hers who lived in another town because they were writing like snail mail letters. And even if he didn't have one, he always liked seeing her. He always Mm -hmm. like be like, maybe next time. And like, he would always have this cute little talk with her. So he had vivid memories of that during his daily rounds. Um, and Megan was like an, an outside type kid. She was always outside doing something. I feel like we all were back then, though. She was always like drawing on the sidewalk with sidewalk chalk or picking backyard flowers for her mom. She loved riding her bike along the shady sidewalks. And she was a very well-known presence and people were always happy to see her. So it wasn't uncommon for her neighbors. They all recognized her. They knew mm-hmm. who she was and they saw her doing the same things all the time. After Maureen's lie down after her rest she woke up and discovered that Megan wasn't anywhere at home now this is the moment that's heart-stopping for any parent but I don't think the absolute panic was immediate because there was of course your first thought is the chance that Megan was safely at one of the neighbor's houses playing games or watching a movie or something she just lost track of time seven-year-olds never want to come home and they're not very good at time so um the Kankas 
left their home and set out around their neighborhood to look for Megan, going to like her friends' houses and places where she would have been. But none of the friends had seen her since they went inside for dinner. The other families on the block hadn't seen her either. And perhaps most alarming, her bike was laying on the front lawn. Yeah. She wouldn't have gone anywhere on foot. This was odd. She would ride her little bike wherever she was going. And I was the same way. At that point, I wouldn't be walking to my friend's house. I'd be riding my bike. Right. So her father knocked on the door of number 27, the house across the street, to see if anyone was home. Now, there are two reports. One says that he knocked on the door, and the other, um, which I think is actually the real one, says that there was someone outside on the front lawn. And so he walked across the street to this man who was outside, who we will find out is, is the man whose name was Jesse. And he says, you know, have you seen my daughters? You know what she looks like. She's always outside. Have you seen her? Or you haven't seen her in a little while. And, you know, he was, this man, Jesse, said he was the only one home at this point in time. He was watching Mrs. Cefeli. Uh, his other roommates left. And he said he hadn't, he had seen her just before dinner. He's like, I saw her outside before riding her bike. But he hadn't seen her since then. He said that Megan and a na- another neighborhood girl named Courtney, her little friend, had asked him about his new boat, which was sitting on the street in front of his house. But he hadn't seen either one of them since that interaction. Hmm. And the times are shady. There are some reports where he says, I saw her at 2.30. And there are some reports where he says, I saw her at 5. So it's not, it's never the same time. At this point, panic starts to set in because no one has seen her. And it's about 8.30 in the evening. So I'm guessing they probably spent about an hour or so looking before they were like, okay, no, it's time. And also 8.30 in the evening is when we're reaching almost totally dark Mm -hmm. in the height of July. So the Kankas make a call to the damn cops. Because unlike movies, in real life, if your child uh, goes missing, you do not need to wait for 24 hours before reporting them. You can report them missing right away, and you should. Mm-hmm. I hate that they still do that. I know. Yeah, it's a shows. plot device because then it gives them more time to have things happen. But like, yeah. we don't need that in life. So don't use a plot device to apply to your life. Anyway, at 8.49 p.m., Hamilton Township Patrol Officer Paul Seitz and Officer Mike Smith arrive at the Kanka residence. Maureen explains to them what has happened, that her daughter is missing. The last time she saw her was before she laid down to take a rest at 6.30. None of the neighbors have seen her. She gives the police a photo of Megan, a recent one. She describes exactly what Megan was wearing and how her hair was done. She even gives the officers a pair of shorts that are like almost exactly like the shorts Megan was wearing. Hmm. Police then, with full permission, searched the Kanka's house and property to see if she was maybe hiding somewhere or fell asleep somewhere weird. That happens with kids. Yeah. They then searched the neighborhood and questioned all the neighbors. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, an all-out search begins amongst the neighbors as well and the Kanka's friends and family. And people start turning up in droves to search for Megan. All things told, I believe it was over a thousand people came out to look for her that night. Wow. It's a lot for a small community. Yeah. I mean, we see this in the Delphi case, too. That's true, yeah. Yeah. So these people, family, friends, neighbors, law enforcement, they're all doing the right things. They're doing exactly what they should be doing in this kind of instance. But unfortunately, it was already too late. Wow. Yeah. After searching the Kanka residence and their property and questioning the families closest to Megan, Officer Seitz crossed the street to talk to Jesse. When law, law enforcement knock on the door, they find Jesse pretty visibly nervous and kind of fidgeting at this point. 
He tells Officer Sites that he had seen Megan riding her bicycle. Oh, here's where we get it. At 2.30 that afternoon, which is not just before dinner. Right. Which is what he told the Kankas. So here we go. We already have Mm -hmm. dissonance. So Officer Sites presses him and says, "Mm, you said you saw her at 2.30. Did you see her again? Maybe later in the day, did you see her twice today? Uh, At which point he amends his statement and says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw her outside riding her bicycle in front of her house between 5.30 and 6.00. Jesse also informs Officer Sites that his roommates, Joseph Feli, um, and a man named Brian Jenin, had gone out shopping between 5.30 and 7.00, and so they could not confirm anything that he was saying. Mm-hmm. They weren't home. Uh, Mrs. Cefeli had remained in her bedroom and was pretty unaware of things in general, so um, Jesse later calls her like an old woman who could barely see or hear. After this, Jesse resumed helping the Kankas hand out missing flyers for their daughter. But something yes. about this whole interaction didn't really seem right to officer sites. And at about 10 p.m., four other officers were sent back to 27 Barbara Lee Lane to obtain consent to search that house. And the owner of the home, Joseph Cifelli, who now has signed over as owner because his mom was not of her proper faculties at the point in time, agrees to the search without hesitation. He said, yeah, search the house, search the yard, search the boat, whatever you need, go ahead. And they do. But, of course, the officers don't find her. They did, however, notice that the washing machine was filled with heavy brown blankets. But at this point in the search, none of the residents were suspects. So there was no need to further investigate this. It's just something they noticed. Hmm. They were really just trying to see if Megan was hopefully hiding somewhere or trapped somewhere or, you know... This, again, it's very similar to when they were searching for the girls in Delphi where they're like, we... Best case scenario, they fell down and they couldn't communicate and we find them somewhere, get the medical attention, and they're all right. Right. And it's not weird. So also remembering this time, and I grew up in a very similar neighborhood to Megan. Yeah, same. I would, I mean, probably not at this time that she did. I I probably would have, like, asked my mom if I could go somewhere. Oh, me too. But... During earlier in the day, mm-hmm. I might have just gone if I was allowed to be outside. Yeah. I probably, like, I would, like, sneak into my neighbor's backyards. Well, or, like, that's what her mother later says. Like, she would, like, pick flowers out of the neighbor's yeah. yards and stuff. And it wasn't weird I would weird sometimes take, like, weird shortcuts just to see yeah. how I could go. Because, you know, I was watching, like, like the movie, like, Ferris Bueller, like, running yeah. through his neighborhood. Yeah. I was like, oh, I want to do that. that Climb a fun. fence. Yeah. yeah. And it was also a thing then where, like, you might find a kid who had climbed into an attic to explore mm-hmm. or or like gone through the storm door in a neighbor's basement mm-hmm. and got trapped down there. That yeah. kind of stuff happens all the time. Right. Kids are very curious. She, maybe she could have been in a shed she got locked in or fell in somebody. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. there's a million options wherein she just got into a situation she couldn't get out of. Right. And that's really what they're thinking at this point. They're thinking they're going to find her in somewhere weird and they're going to be able to bring her home. Mm-hmm. But they didn't. And then at approximately 12.30 a.m., so now she's been missing for, you know, like a good six hours, detectives were brought onto the scene. Detectives O'Dwyer and Kiefer and Detective Sergeant Stanley obtained a signed consent, yet again, without hesitation, from Joseph Cifelli to search the home. So now detectives are searching the house across the street. Joseph, Brian, and Jesse were all then questioned individually at this time as well. Joe goes first. Officers had searched his room and found a pair of ladies' underwear with teddy bears on them in between his mattress and box spring. Oh. Yep. 
which they go, oh, this is suspicious. But Joe tells the officers they belong to an ex-girlfriend and they were a souvenir. Yeah. Disgusting. Mm -hmm. Disgusting, but not illegal since the story checked out and they were, in fact, adult underwear. Oh, weird. With teddy bears on them? Yep. Now I feel weird, like, when I want to buy, like, fun... Maybe they were sexy, sexy teddy bears. But, like, the... Well, just in case they ever sponsor us, I don't want to say their name, but, like, the fun pairs of underwear that, like, have little designs on them. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, I love those, like, little cartoons. And I'm like, I don't know that I can do that as an adult. Yeah, well, no (laughs) one's putting them in between their mattress and box spring. You don't know. I hope I do know. know. (laughs) Oh, my God. But again, this checks out. It's not kids' underwear. So they are like, all right, well, I mean, you're kind of gross, but you didn't do anything against the law. Mm Mm-hmm. Joe had also waived his Miranda rights and seemingly had nothing to hide. Again, this guy's letting them into his house repeatedly. And his alibi checked out. He was shopping at that point in time. There were the receipts to prove it. And Jesus Christ, though, if any of my exes kept my underwear, I I would be appalled. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not something you want to know about. No. (laughs) Especially if those guys um, were anything like the men we're talking about, which I will get to their histories in a minute. Yep. Uh, and Brian, Brian went next. So this is another one of the roommates at this house. Officers searched his room and found absolutely nothing questionable. He had a secure alibi. It was the same as Joe's. They were together. And nothing that he had to say raised any suspicions. His story aligned with Joe's, and neither one of them ever wavered or changed. So this is solid. They were not at the house at the time. Then the detectives came to Jesse, who at this point was trembling and sweating profusely. Not a good look for an interrogation. You don't want to be sweaty and shaking, especially considering how creepy he looks already, which I've sent you pictures of him. I will have pictures, obviously, in the photo suite. He has a very unsettled look about him. I can only imagine if you pair that with like shaking and sweating and nervous body language, it's not exactly a ringing endorsement for innocence. Jesse told officers that he had gone out earlier in the day with his roommates to buy a boat. This checks out. They did buy a boat. He was with his roommate. After they bought the, brought the boat home, he washed the boat on the street in front of their house. And then at around 5.30, he was approached by Megan and Courtney. At this point, he was home alone. Again, we don't really count the old lady that can't see or hear anything. After this shifty mess of an interview, the detectives thought, Maybe they should Mirandize Jesse and bring him into headquarters for a formal interview. He's not looking very good. I have a question. Have they, like, where's Courtney? I'm I'm guessing they spoke to her and her family. Okay. Because this is earlier in the day. Okay. That they, that they talked to him, I guess. Oh, okay. Again, his story's changed. She definitely was with kids earlier in the day biking around the neighborhood and doing stuff. Nobody okay. questions that. They questioned where she was later in the day. Okay. And he keeps saying like, oh, yeah, he was, she was with her friend later and she wasn't. Or she, I can't remember. Oh, it was six o'clock and she was outside. He's just, okay. he's like all over the place. At this point, officers also dismiss Brian and Joe. Again, their alibis totally check out. Uh, and they allow Jesse to drive to the station in his own car. Bad call, Jesse. Um, and they, they follow him behind in patrol cars. At 2.30 a.m., they get there and they read him his Miranda rights with Jesse Waves and a formal interview begins. Jesse stated that he didn't need a lawyer. He never once asked for one. And he said that he was happy to talk to the officers as long as they needed because he just wanted to help. Mm. 
At this point, the officers had done a little background checking. Mm. And what they found hoisted the red flags high. First of all, they discovered how the three roommates knew each other. They had all been convicted of sexual assault against minors and served time together at the Adult Diagnostic and Treatment Center in Avonel, New Jersey. Mm. So they just all became friends there? Yep. This sounds like it's maybe a hospital or something, but it's not. It's a men's prison specifically for sex offenders, where inmates also receive psychological treatment before being mainstreamed back into society. The really intense offenders are isolated in a block of private cells and given daily one-on-one treatment until such a time that they can be reintroduced into smaller pockets of the inmate population for increasing amounts of time. So I'll repeat, all three of these men were put away at a treatment center for the Hannibal Lecters of pedophiledom. Hmm. It's interesting, though, because we talk about how we want, this is like what we want. We want them to get treatment. We want them to get treatment. I just don't know that putting them all together is the way. Yeah. That creates a camaraderie. That's true. It's it's better to be, it's better to be mixed. mixed at in. least I think. I mean, this would reflect that. They made friends with one another. Right. Oh, God. And then, then these three guys all ended up moving into a family neighborhood together under the same roof. And that was just okay. And it was thought that this would be, this would just go without incident. What? To me, that just seems like a recipe for disaster. Well, it is, but not... For them, recidivism is actually <laughs> relatively low among um, child sex offenders, not sex offenders who are children, people that offend against children. Um, the incidence of it is usually like they usually don't reoffend, which is oh. so contrary in my brain. It seems like they would be the most repeat offenders, but statistically, they're not. Um, oh. But when you get a camaraderie situation like that, where you could be talking about things that are piquing your interest or, or made to feel okay yeah you're or, in a supportive exactly environment. where you can either yeah. talk about that or engage in fantasies about that or mm-hmm. talk about that it just to me seems dangerous I mean I would assume though that like I mean they were they knew that they were going to get out and they were going to need to find a place to live and it was going well they were released at different intervals too oh, okay. which I'll get into in a second so like Joe was released and a few years later Brian was released and a few years later Jesse was released right but they stayed in touch enough to all live together afterwards for Joe to be like oh you need a place to stay come live with me right right so what were they in for huh where to start Now, I have done about as much research on these men as a person can do without actually invoking the Freedom of Information Act, which I suppose I could, but honestly, I don't want to because I lived in that area when I was a kid, and it's all kind of a lot to think about. Mm. But here is what one can find on the internet if one is determined enough. Joe Cefeli, who grew up at 27 Barbara Lee, um, eventually took possession of the house as well, was arrested in a neighboring town in 1978 for repeated sexual abuse of a child beginning when the child was nine. Some sources list his charges as including, but not limited to, rape, sodomy, corruption, and aggravated sexual assault. That is serious. Yeah. All of it's serious, but that's all of the serious ones. Right. While some details are a little hazy because reporting can be varied, what is clear is that this was an instance of prolonged 
habitual abuse and that it occurred in several different locations. Mm. So again, you're already seeing recidivism with this guy. Like, he's already a repeat offender. This is not one incident. Mm -hmm. And some sources cite the victim as a family member, while others keep her more anonymous or say that she was a child in the neighborhood. Some sources also put her age starting at around four. Some say nine. All the legal documents I've found say nine, so that's why I went with that one. But this is not better or worse. It just is. A nine-year-old child is a child in every sense of the word, just as much as a four-year-old child is. And for his offenses, Joe was sent to Avonell for nine years, which in those kind of offenses is long. It doesn't seem like enough time, but comparatively it is. Uh, not enough, but long. And, um, and it was big news when he went away around his neighborhood in 1978. But remember, this is a year before the Kankas moved in. So they weren't there when this happened. The mm. rest of the neighbors may have been, and the previous occupants of the house were, because the previous occupants of the Kenka's house actually, like, I remember reading about them finding out Joe coming back into the area and, like, calling other neighbors. So they were still kind of tuned into that. Oh, okay. Because the neighbors that lived there before the Kenka's, their friends were, their kids were friends with Joe. So they had had him, like, in their house. Mm. But then no one told the Kenka's? Well, here's, okay. let's get to that. So after Joe's release in 1987, he moves back into his childhood home with his mother, and the neighborhood certainly did whisper about it. But in this way, it is also kind of presented as gossip, and gossip reaches who it will reach. Mm. And if you didn't know Joe right before he went away, it might not be news to you, and you might not receive that update. So people might not be like, hey, remember Joe, that he's back in the area, if you didn't ever know Joe. Right. The Kankas firmly state that they did not know any of the men living in that house were sexual offenders. There are some people, neighbors, who say, oh, there's no way they didn't know about Joe. But this is also neither here nor there because he's not the one who does this. Right, right. Also, Joe's mother at this point was still a member of the community, so there's really no telling how loudly vocal people were about him when she could have mm -hmm. been around. There are sources, again, like I said, that say everybody knew Joe was a child molester, but I highly doubt that's true. Not only because the information was not broadcast to everyone, but also because we generally don't believe every single sensational thing we hear. Yeah. And even if everyone did know about Joe, it's not Joe. Yeah. Okay. Next, we have Brian Jennin, who had been arrested and spent an undisclosed amount of time in Avonel for raping two boys under the age of 13, whom he had met by volunteering for the Big Brother program. Oh, I hate that. Huh? Ugh. Yep. That's one of the most terrible sentences I've ever had to write down. Mm -hmm. The best are the articles that say, quote, Mr. Jennon had sex with two young boys. No, he did not. Having sex is consensual, and children cannot consent no matter the circumstance, let alone when they are cornered and force is used. What he did was rape two little boys. Yeah. Hate that language. I hate it so much. I know. So then the last of the three is a man named Jesse Temendiquas. That's who we're talking about here. Um, and I'll give you a little bit of a mini sort of biography on Jesse when we get around to the court portion of this case, and you can decide how truthful you think some of it is for yourself, as the information on him is all over the place. Uh, Jesse was actually a two-time convicted sex offender, so he has two. Mm. In 1979, Jesse pled guilty to aggravated sexual assault of a five-year-old in Piscataway Township, New Jersey. He had asked the little girl to come into the woods with him to look for ducks. 
Ew. Mm-hmm. Then pulled down her pants and molested her. After failing, so he got um, a suspended sentence for this on the condition that he would go to counseling. Why the fuck he got a suspended sentence? I can't tell you. Um, but he did. But he didn't go to counseling. And so he was sent to Middlesex Adult Correctional Center for nine months. But some people just never learn. And in 1981, Jesse was convicted yet again for a sex crime against a minor. But this time, it was the sexual assault and battery of a seven-year-old girl. He led this little girl away by talking to her about fireworks. Once he had her alone in a remote location, he sexually assaulted the girl and then strangled her until she was unconscious. For that, he served six years in Avonel. Six years. Six years. It seems like it should be much more than six years. That seems like a very light offense for, like, trying to kill a child and raping them. Right. I know. It it boggles my mind. Why are children so much less valuable? I don't understand. We should be stating that they are more than anything. I mean, like, that's not that anyone is ever deserving of any kind of sexual assault, but, like, somehow on an innocent child, I just feel like there's so many more layers to it. Yes, thank you. And that that's what the problem is because it's, okay, if you were, if this is, I don't know, if I mean, you're I capable of doing that or th- thinking about it, like what else? Yeah, plus you're, you're sexually attracted to a child. I know, yeah. There's just so many layers to somebody that thinks that yep. way. And I just don't think or that is six, that. six years think. is enough. I'm sorry. No. Nobody nobody wants you around. No, just like, get out of here. Nobody wants you here. around. Raping children should send you away for life. I'm just going oh, like, to put that out in the world. Push him off a cliff. It's fine. <laughs> Y'all got to go. I'm Y'all so sorry. Go. I don't. Bye forever. I have no tolerance for you people. I have no time for it. <laughs> I don't either. Anyway, these three prized gentlemen were all at Avonel at the same time and formed a friendship. Brian and Jesse were also um, lovers during their time in lockup. Oh, that's nice. You know, that's they, nice for them. They were prison sex buddies. So it seems like they're really carefully monitoring these guys if they're able to be fucking in jail. <sighs> sex offender jail. They're fucking in sex offender jail. No, you don't get to do that. Anyway, whatever their friendship was, it was strong enough that they were able to kept in, keep in touch. And Joe invited the two other men to live with them as they were released. For the life of me, again, I cannot understand why this arrangement is legal. You want to let three grown men who like to have sex with children in the same house together, and you don't think that's going to backfire? I don't think so. After this point in the story, though, Joe is totally off the hook when it comes to this case. Because, again, he was extremely compliant. His alibi totally checked out. He's an unsavory character, and he's done awful things in the past. But in this specific case, he hasn't done anything. This, so this, I guess, clears up why the police are there so much longer. Uh, like Yeah, three sex okay. offenders living yeah. in that house. Yeah. Or, but even before they realized who the other two were, yeah. they just knew. They know that that, that guy is. Yeah, they knew that Joe was, so mm-hmm. that makes sense to me. as Because I just felt like, why? Why are they there so much? Yeah, yeah like, because they knew. They didn't seem to go to the other houses, and then how come they weren't like, well, Courtney said that she didn't see you guys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they knew. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, let's rejoin the case in progress. When the detectives arrive at the station with Jesse, so it's 2.30 in the morning, they get to the station, they have Jesse in his car with them. Um, They Mirandize him at this point in time. He waves his Miranda rights, and they begin questioning. 
Jesse also gives the police at their request a written statement documenting his whereabouts on the 29th. So like, tell us your day on the 29th. Write down everything you did. But this statement conflicted with the previous accounts Jesse had given to the other officers, which were, of course, recorded. In particular, Jesse wrote that he had seen Megan a second time on the 29th, this time at 6.30 p.m. He had previously, of course, told law enforcement that that he had seen her once at 2.30, and then once at 2.30, and once at 5.30. And then in another statement, he said he saw her at around 6. So he's all over the map. Now I know what you're thinking. Time is hard, and liars get everything right all the time. We're dealing with a horse of a different color here. First of all, Jesse is like sweating balls at this point. He looks petrified. He's shaking. He is starting to not make eye contact with anyone. His body language is very constrained. Like he crosses his arms and his legs to like protect, is like a protective stance. Second, we will come to discover that Jesse's IQ puts him in the range of cognitively impaired. It's like a 78. Mm. So the complex machinations that accompany lying in a consistent manner to an authority figure under stress are probably not in his range of abilities. In other words, he is not a smooth criminal. He is this, the, the, the inconsistencies are clearly like nerves and something is up, not just like, oh, a person can't remember a story. At 4 a.m., Jesse then signs a consent form from the officers to search his car, where they find a brown toy chest, and a black piece of felt, which are curious items. The detectives also notice and document an injury on Jesse's hands. He claims that he cut it on a curtain rod that hung in his truck to separate the passenger area and the cab part of the truck. (laughs) Classy! But there was no blood or DNA anywhere on the curtain or any indication that the rod had been taken down or used in any way. So they're like, you cut your hand on this curtain rod, but there's nothing on this curtain rod that indicates that would have happened. Mm. And the injury on Jesse's hand doesn't look like a curtain rod injury. It looks like a bite. Oh. Yeah. After they search his car and document his his injury on his hand, Jesse is released with the promise that he will return later that day for further questioning. It's 4 a.m. They let him go. Then Detective Martin Ingebrandt was called into headquarters at approximately 5.30 a.m. to help with this investigation. At approximately 7 a.m., Detective Ingebrandt was sent to Jesse's house to obtain consent to search the boat in the yard again. Again, Joseph Felly opens the door, signs the consent, says do whatever you need to do. Officers begin to search the boat, looking initially everywhere for fingerprints. So they're looking for Megan's fingerprints at this point. Detective Ingebrandt later testifies that when they walked over to the boat, there was no garbage at the curb at 27 Barbara Lee Drive. This is very reminiscent of Larry Nassar. Um... During the course of the search, though, the detective notices someone who he later learns was Jesse walking a black lab puppy down Barbara Lee Lane. (sighs) Yeah, he just got a puppy. A few minutes later, the detective notices that three garbage cans had appeared on the curb at the side of the boat that had not been there before. And the officers, who are very keen in this case, immediately obtain Joe's consent to also search that garbage. Joe's like, yeah, have all the garbage you want. I don't give a shit. At 9.15 a.m., the officers returned to headquarters with three big bags of garbage, <laughs> which to me is, like, kind of funny. I just pictured them, like, walking into the police station and putting these garbage bags down. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> Nothing was confiscated from the boat. Nothing was out of the ordinary on the boat. So they searched through the garbage, and when they do so, officers find 
a rope with some knots tied at it and a substance that appeared to be dried blood on it. They also find the waistband of a small pair of children's shorts and a piece of material that matches the waistband. Hmm. The items were all mixed in with household trash. At approximately 10 a.m., the detectives bring the scraps of clothing to the Kanker residence for identification, which must have been maybe the worst thing in the world. I, I can't imagine being up all night worrying about and searching for my missing daughter only to have the police return in the morning with bloody pieces of her clothes. I can't. I don't. Yeah. No parent. No parent should ever, 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 ever have to go through that moment. That is awful. So Mrs. Kanka, though, confirms that the articles of clothing were Megan's and the Kankas went to police headquarters to make a statement. At 12, 17 p.m. on the 30th, Jesse went through yet another round of interrogations by two other detectives and wrote out yet another written statement and was read his rights. Of course, everything's on the up and up, which he waived. Detectives noticed differences between Jesse's first and second written statements and the fact that he kept focusing on the 6.30 to 6, on the 6 to 6.30 p.m. time frame, kept mentioning that time of day, mentioned it three or four times, even though the detectives had not particularly asked him about that time period at all. At that point, one of the detectives shows Jesse photographs of the bloody clothing scraps, which Jesse said were just rags he had used in his job as a street cleaner in Princeton. Who the fuck is cleaning the street with a rag? Yeah, that makes no fucking sense. Get out, sir. Jesse was questioned until six that evening. So they spent the whole day with him and in the interrogation room. Danny LaRusso just out there waxing (laughs) on and waxing off. Yep. (laughs) On the street. Yeah. Just polishing the street with a rag. Mr. Miyagi is a tough guy. (laughs) He's a tough customer. Clean the street and I'll teach you karate. Yeah. Rub this asphalt with a rag that is made from children's shorts. Nobody believes you. Get out of here. (sighs) Of course, Jesse's also given breaks. This isn't one of those like forced confession situations. But at this point in time, it gets to be about six in the evening. He asks to talk to his roommate and former lover, Brian, which the detectives go, okay, we're not stopping you from anything. This is just, you're just helping us out. So they bring Brian in. And Brian is then heard saying, quote, they got you, they got you, they got you. You're going to need a friend on the outside. I'll be that friend. In response to this, Jesse puts his head down, then looks up and says, she's in Mercer County Park. After that, the truth came out. Jesse said that Megan was dead, that he had put a plastic bag over her head and dumped her body in the park. He agreed to show police exactly where and led them right to the spot. And right where he said, she was there lying in the tall weeds near a remote bathroom concealed from view with a plastic bag over her head, just like he said. Ew. Yeah. Oh, so horrible. Awful. On the car ride back, a full confession was made. Jesse told the detectives that he had seen Megan get on her bike at around 6.30 while he was outside washing his boat. He um, approached her and said that he had a brand new puppy, which he did, and asked her if she wanted to come inside and see it. What seven-year-old wouldn't? Of course, yeah. He brought Megan into his bedroom where he sexually assaulted her. And when she started to scream and try to get away, he started to panic because he knew she would tell her parents and he would go to jail. And like, he would go to for real jail at this point because this is his third offense. 
And so he's, Megan starts to struggle. She starts fighting furiously when, where this is the point in time where she bites him on the hand. Jesse then slaps her across the mouth hard, hard enough to make her mouth bleed, and pulls her into the room by the waistband of her shorts. In doing so, the shorts rip, and Megan hits her head first on the doorframe and then her face on the dresser and is knocked unconscious, at which time Jesse ties a plastic bag over her head to prevent the blood coming from her head wounds from getting on his floor. Then he attempts to rape her. And I won't get into the nitty-gritty of the actual sexual assault. It happens. It's awful. Yeah, we don't need I don't that. need to do that. Then he strangles her with a belt until she passes away. And just when it ends, Jesse hears his roommates come in the front door. At this point, it is approximately 7.30. He took Megan's body and put it in a large brown toy box that he had converted into a toolbox and carry it down the stairs and out to his car. So he walks right past his roommates holding this box, which I guess he had done before because it was his toolbox. So he's just going out to the car with his tools. His roommates, the roommates didn't, they would have no reason to think, oh, there must be a body in that box. Still creepy. Yeah. Jesse said, told the police that he had planned on dumping the body near the power lines in the neighborhood, but he saw a police car there. And so instead, he took her to Mercer County Park and left her where he said. Afterwards, he went to Wawa where he bought cigarettes and a paper. I know. I hate that he did something so casual after that. It just is so gross to me. And then he went home. When he got home, he ripped up Megan's shorts into pieces because they were still in her bedroom and uh, went outside. And that is when Mr. Kanka approaches him and asks, asks if he has seen his daughter. Jesse said no. And then helped him hand out flyers. Oh, I know. It happened so fast. Yep. There are so many near misses, and it happened in, like, just minutes. Dr. Rafat Ahmad, the Mercer County medical examiner, performed an autopsy on Megan's body, which confirmed that she had been raped, sexually assaulted. It's like attempted rape. It's very gross, and I don't want to get into it. It also um, reveals that she received blunt force injury to the head, and died via manual strangulation. So the bags were genuinely just there to keep the blood from the carpet. She was strangled, not suffocated. After signing his last statement, Jesse added that he felt he had been, quote, slipping for a while, meaning he was, quote, getting those feelings for little girls, and that he had been watching Megan outside for months. That's that's what I, oh, yeah. I mean, that's what I was thinking was happening. Yeah. He had been like staring at her from across the street for like, he makes also like really disgusting comments about her body and seeing her and stuff. And it's it's awful. Um, And they had no idea. Why would they know? Right. Forensic analysis of the the evidence showed just, I mean, uh, everything. There was DNA everywhere. DNA on the body, DNA under fingernails, DNA under hers and his fingernails. The bite marks on his hand lined up to um, dental impressions of Megan's teeth. There was, um, you know, semen evidence was found in places where it would be found and his bed had blood and semen on it. And I mean, it was, it was just laid out. Right. Exactly how it happened. And, and which this is so damning. It's nearly impossible to argue that in court. You have a signed confession and all the evidence in the world. Mm-hmm. But the defense tried their best by bringing in a social worker by the name of Carol Crick 
Carol claimed that Jesse had been brought up by an alcoholic mother who had 10 children by seven different men and a horrifically abusive father who regularly raped and beat Jesse and his brother Paul during their childhood, which was spent in a small and filthy trailer. I don't care. You still can't rape and kill a little girl. I don't care. Do better. Yeah. Carol also went on to say that his father forced Jesse and his brother Paul to watch him rape a seven-year-old girl that he tortured, that he also tortured and killed their pets, and that he forced the boys to eat their own pet rabbit. Carol then claimed that this trauma, coupled with Jesse's cognitive disabilities, made him kind of unable to distinguish right from wrong, and that he never intended on killing Megan, only sexually assaulting her, and that therefore he should be incarcerated but spared the death penalty. You can fuck right off. This is his fucking third offense. Right. And he strangled a girl before. He he killed somebody. I'm sorry. I know. He, yeah. And, pur- and with purpose. With mm-hmm. purpose. You don't wrap the bag around the head and like, come on, man. He's been planning this for months. Yeah. Maybe not like fully killing, but right. he, plan- he planned this. For like- sure. <laughs> the defense even trotted in <sighs> Jesse's brother, Paul, who confirmed the whole thing but also asked what he'd be getting paid for his services. The defense also uh, brought in a psychiatrist who, though he had never once examined Jesse himself, claimed that he had schizotypal personality disorder, fetal alcohol syndrome, and quote, not me, this is a quote, mental retardation. Shock, surprise, he did not have any of those things. According to psychiatrists that actually examined him, also his brother Paul later on went to commit very similar sexual offenses against children and at one point ran from the law and was a fugitive for two years. Yeah. Doing good. Um, And Paul also later recants all of his statements and says he lied and that he hopes his brother gets the death penalty. Not at this point in time, later on. And the only one of the things they claimed he had, this like other psychiatrist, was some, some cognitive impairment. Again, I I stated before that he had an IQ that indicated he was cognitively impaired. But clearly, it wasn't severe enough to impact him living an adult life. He drove a car. He held down a job. He paid bills. He did all the adult stuff you need to do. So he wasn't impaired enough to need any kind of assistance. Right. He knew right from wrong. Otherwise, he wouldn't be in society all by himself. Mm -hmm. Especially after he'd been in lockup, they would have known. The prosecution eventually ended up speaking to Jesse's father, who they tracked down off the grid in a trailer with no running water, living with his second wife. And he didn't live like that because he was broke. He lived like that because he chose to, because he, quote, didn't like what the blacks were doing to this country. God damn it. Yeah, he's a real peach. The deputy that talked to him eventually was like, I can't tell you he's a KKK member, but I also can't tell you he's not. And wait, and I'm sorry, who was this? This is Jesse's father. Okay. Um, a man whose name is Skip. Um, and I think his original last name was like something really easy, like Harris or Clark or something. But he mm-hmm. changed it to Tamendiquas when a neighboring family in his youth that was like uh, indigenous took him in. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's a lot. Mm. But his father also told a very different story. And I don't think that this is the kind of guy who gave enough of a shit to lie, to be very honest with you, because what he told them was that he left his family when Jesse was four. He was like, Mm. no, I left them. They stayed with their mother. At their mother's request, I didn't come around anymore. She had a different person living in the house or whatever. He's like, they didn't live in a dusty trailer their whole life either. They were okay. 
He said that their mother was a decent woman who he would not have considered an alcoholic. I don't know how well his opinion reflects that. But he said that she had like to, like to throw back a few at barn dances now and then. But Oh, my God. But she wasn't like a constant drunk. He said that Jesse certainly wasn't born with fetal alcohol syndrome. And they said that the last he had heard of Jesse and Paul was when he saw Paul in Las Vegas a few years prior. And Paul told them that when he and Jesse were kids, they used to rape their half-sister in the attic. Oh, my God. At this point, swarthy racist old dad Skip was like, um, I don't love that. And he decided he didn't need to see Paul anymore. Yeah. But this is what I mean by you can decide how much of his childhood you believe was awful. I don't think all of that insane stuff happened to him. I don't think his father raped him. I don't think he made them eat their pet rabbit or kill or rape the little girl in front of them. Maybe his mother was a little boozy. Maybe he had a stepfather that wasn't the nicest. But I don't think he was like glass castle traumatized when he was a kid. Right, right. And and also his brother later admits that those were lies and then runs from the law for two years. We're trusting him. Right. Thankfully, the jury wasn't buying any of that horseshit either and found Jesse guilty on all counts, and he was sentenced to death, which was later commuted to life without parole when New Jersey did away with the death penalty. Mm. He has appealed three separate times. Every time he appeals, he claims that his roommates were also guilty. He said, oh, I did this. They did stuff too. But if you remember, law enforcement did carefully look into the other two guys. There was no evidence in their rooms. Their alibis checked out. On all of his appeals, they had no reason to believe anybody else was involved but him. And none of them ever went through. So, Jesse Tamendaquas is still in jail here in New Jersey. Okay. Um, The Kankas then took their grief and used it as motivation. A month after the murder, the New Jersey General Assembly passed a series of bills proposed by Assemblyman Paul Kramer that would require sex offender registry with a database tracked by the state, community notification of registered sex offenders moving into a neighborhood, and then life in prison for repeat sex offenders. Ding, ding, ding. The Kankas remained that they had, if they had known who had been living in their neighborhood, they never would have let their daughter out on her bike alone, let alone in the evening. On May 17, 1996, President Bill Clinton signed a federal version of Megan's law. Though states could set their own parameters for notification, the law required all states to have some form of registry to be available to the public so people could know when a sex offender moved in nearby. Great. Yeah. New Jersey's is really easy. So, yeah, that is the horrible story of Megan Kanka and um, the subsequent formation of Megan's law. That's, oh, it's such a, it's so frustrating. It's very frustrating. It feels so preventable. And I understand the just rage that came from family and community after this. And the desire to know. You're like, well, who the hell is living next door? You know? Yeah. I, it's so frustrating because laws like this don't get made until something happens. No, they don't. And it seems like, a no-brainer that, like, when somebody has an offense like this, you're like, yeah, here's, here's, like, the penalties that you have to deal with. But, like, no, only, you only think of them after they happen. 
Yeah. Aren't you also like, are you reporting to a parole board or do you have like a social worker that's checking in on you? What is your life? I know that um, anybody who was committed to Avenel has the option of outpatient treatment after they leave. But why the fuck do they have an option? Yeah, I it's like you can have outpatient treatment for free after you leave if you want it. Like you're giving them an amenity. No, they should require treatment for the rest of this person's life. If you are slipping back into thoughts where you think about fucking a kid, you mm-hmm. need to tell your therapist and they need to go mm, lock them up for a little while. Right. I I don't. Ugh. Yeah. So this is frustrating. Um, It's very frustrating. Did. Okay. Did we find out what the requirements are for like um, living situations? As far as I can see there, there, New Jersey doesn't have them. You can live with other sex offenders. They can live anywhere closer to a school they want. They don't have restrictions. Mm. Other states do, like California has like the parameters where they can't live near a school or a playground, stuff like that. We just don't happen to have them. It's so weird because this is where the case happened. I know. Like you would think it would be the strictest. One would hope. That's so, that's so strange. And then like, do they have to write that? Obviously you get a review, like a, like when you're filling out an application, they have to, like, they look at your criminal history. Yeah. And so that would pop up, but is it is that something that you could be denied for, or is no, that discrimination? I mean, it's I think it's discrimination. I mean, like I like I said, and when we were talking about this with our patrons, in a rental rental agreement, you can set those parameters. Like if mm-hmm. it's your property that you own, you do not have to rent to anybody with a criminal background. That's just landlord tenant stuff. You right? You're you're going to put down your criminal background for any kind of rental system. But when you're buying a house. You don't have to. Mm-hmm. I mean, you might when you apply for a mortgage, the bank could possibly turn you down because of a criminal background, but that's up to the bank. Okay. It's not up to the realtor. Okay. Ugh. Yeah. And a bank, uh, a bank is not going to base their decisions most likely on crimes like that. They're probably going to look at financial things. They're going to look at your income and the stability of your situation. That's what's going to determine whether they give you a loan or not, not whether you've you know, had interactions with children in the past that were unsavory. Though I don't know, there could be some that do. I really think this is probably a state-by-state, case-by-case, bank-by-bank situation. And with renters, it's definitely going to be based on, like, your landlords and what their requirements are and how loose they are on it. There are plenty of landlords that rent to people with criminal histories. And there are plenty of people who have done time for other reasons that deserve to go back out into the world and rent a house and live their life. yeah, for sure. So we can't really put out a blanket statement that anyone who has been in prison can't live anywhere. That's No, it's not even that. It's just for the option that they could easily be like, no, especially if it's like if uh, if they are trying to get a house near a school system and yeah. they want to be like, no, we're going to try to look for somebody else. I and- mean, if I owned a property, I would I would definitely want the right to turn down people who might be a damage to their to the community that property was in mm-hmm. for sure. So it's, it's really like that gets really red tapey where you're like, oh, who has who reserves the right to deny? Right. I know it's just tough because I, I don't. I don't think that everyone should be discriminated against. Of course but not. 
there's, I don't know, there's just cases like this when... They shouldn't have been able to live together, first of all. Second of all, they shouldn't have been allowed to live that close to lots and lots of little children. Yeah. But it doesn't sound like, I mean, even to live together, it doesn't seem like that they have any control over that anywhere. I don't know. I really didn't like comb into other states' laws, but it seems to me like, God, that seems, it seems so obvious to me that they shouldn't be living together. I know, but also, so obviously not in New Jersey, because if it doesn't matter where they live, but in other states, if they have other, like, more restrictions, yeah, it's kind of like they only have so many places to live. They're probably going to end up rooming together. Yeah. Well, California also falls under, like, Jessica Lunsford, I think was, I think Jessica's law might be out there. And that's, like, a law that implies more or applies more restrictions to sex offenders. So, like, again, you get things like you can't live near a school, you can't live near a park, you can't live near a playground, you can't, you know, be within so many feet of children. You can't, like, Mm -hmm. all those restrictions file under a separate law. They're not under Megan's law. Megan's law is only that you are to be informed when they live in your area, not that they cannot live there. Mm. I know. But, I mean, in this way, I mean, the Kankas afterwards were like, we just truly, we wish we would have known. We wish we would have known who was right across the street. We had no idea. Right. We would have said, hey, don't go near that house. Mm-hmm. And the really, really shitty part about this whole thing, too, is that there are neighbors that came out afterwards and were like, well, we always told our kids not to go near that house. They're like, oh, Joey's a perv. Don't go near that house. Those scumbag guys live there. I, I always told my daughter she couldn't ever go near that house. They had to have known. No, they didn't. No, they yeah. didn't. Why would they be like, we're fine with it? They clearly didn't know. Right. But and they were also just the people across the street. I know they were so close. It wasn't like the three guys that lived down the lane. No, they were they're like diagonally across across the street street. Mm -hmm. and not knowing their past. Even just to have three men, if they were down the street, a parent would be like, "Um, "Don't be talking to like these three men down the street because I can't see you." But you're across the street from me. You're like this is safety zone. Yeah. This is safe. We're okay. Oh, and since then, that house was bulldozed and they put up a park called Megan's Place. Oh, that's yeah, nice. Yeah, it's sweet. Good. It's like there's a plaque and there's... I was going to say, I hope that house is gone. <laughs> it's gone. And there's a plaque, there's benches, and there's... Oh, this is going to make me cry. There's like... um, It's just like little concrete slab area. And after it was dedicated, like all the kids in the neighborhood were there and they all rode on their bikes. And one little girl who was her friend was like, oh... She would really like that there's hopscotch. Oh. I know. That part, like, just broke my heart because this little girl was like, we played hopscotch at school together, and she would really like that there's hopscotch here. Yeah, hopscotch was the best. It was. My kids still love it. Yeah, so good. (sighs) Yeah, I think there's also a dedication plaque to her in Mercer County Park. Okay. Um, And they have a foundation, Mm -hmm. help other kids. And the Kankas have done a ton of very good, good work and activism like I applaud them I don't they just took the pain they were in and focused it and went to work I don't had I mean they had two other kids they they had to fight for Mm -hmm. and protect at the time their two other kids were nine and twelve yeah Megan was seven yeah so I just can't I can't imagine even being able to function no so I applaud them that's pretty brave and amazing wow yeah, yeah, I never heard that full story, so. Yeah, see, most of us just know, like, oh, she's a def- I knew that she was assault- sexually assaulted. I knew she was murdered. I knew she was found in Mercer County Park, and then there was a law afterwards. Okay. But I only ever heard of Jesse's name. 
I didn't realize three of them were living together. Yeah, that's that's a lot. I just that all blew just like on a neighborhood yeah, street, on a on a quiet street where like like my neighborhood, every house is kids. Yeah. What? I don't know. Toast? Toast. So to Megan. Yes. And the Kankas, to to all of them. And to the members of their community and the police force, they really did the damn thing. Like within 24 hours, case closed. Like yeah. they, they did it. So cheers to everybody who worked so hard. Cheers. And I guess just because you mentioned this at the beginning, too, with these kind of cases, uh, to all the children whose cases don't get yeah, who we don't know about, or that just haven't gotten this much attention, and that we don't think about today. And truly, I need to make a more concerted effort to tell more of their stories. The horrible reality of some of that is there isn't that much information available, mm-hmm. but we will do. We will try harder. Yeah. But that doesn't make it any less important no. to discuss. Agree. To, to all of those children. And if we thought the world was filled with nothing but friendly people who had our backs, we, we would, would be, be dead. dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WouldBeDeadPod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more.